Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 128 my name is Dr. David Sinoe. I'm here in the Vomitorium, Vomitorium South, down in the hermetically sealed bunker with my good friend and co-host, the fabulous Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How are you, Jeff? I'm feeling good, especially now that you said fabulous. That's right. You're I'm, fabulous. I'm feeling fabulous. Tonight. All right. It's, it's, it's like a rainy, kind of a, a damp night out there in, yeah. in West Michigan. Rainy days and Mondays always get me down. Same here. Yeah. Exactly. As, a, as some singer once said. That's correct. Yeah. Who, yeah. Was that Karen Carpenter? Well, I think it was the Carpenters. All yes. right, Karen Carpenter. Yeah, yeah, very, very good. Coming out with a pop reference, you're surprised, aren't you? I am surprised, All right. but, but I, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that uh, um, I, I I pegged you for a Karen Carpenter fan. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> no, You've heard of seasonal affective disorder? I have. Sad. Yes, I don't know if it's true, but I love the acronym. I guess there's some truth to it. Yeah. Um, seasonal affective disorder. I was trying to think of another one uh, today. Glum. Glum. What, what, what would that stand oh, for? I couldn't. I was having trouble with the U. <laughs> Get lost, you Michigan. But it doesn't really fit. Yeah. Well, keep massaging to okay. see what it takes here. You right? got anything? No, I got nothing. I just the 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 sad stuff reminds right. me. Remember, there was a brief period where remember people were trying to market these like these light helmets. We have one. Do you really? Yeah. <laughs> it's supposed to counter. The it sh- shines in your face. Yes. Yeah. It's not a helmet. Well, we don't have the helmet. <laughs> We, we have the like t- a visor. It's a tiny little light that reflects upon you. It's supposed to give you, you know, your dose of vitamin D. Okay. Um, the sun that you can hold in your hand. Yeah. Doesn't really work. Yeah. Well, we get maybe like twenty years ago, there it was. You could only find it in helmet. That's uh, right. Form, but helmet now think, form. Every, everything's gotten smaller. Miniaturized. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Our audience, for example. <laughs> yeah. So what are we talking about tonight? Well, have you asked how I'm feeling? Uh, how are you feeling, Dave? I'm I'm feeling uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Yep. It's a Monday. It's kind of my day off a little bit. You know, my the bulk of my work as a pastor is on Sunday, yeah. which was yesterday. And so then today I could take a little time off, uh, do a little bit of reading, a little exercising. Yeah. And then tonight some podcasting. Right? Yeah, yeah. Do so. you find like at the, end of, at the end of a Sunday you're just kind of just gassed? Yeah, I am pretty I, I uh, fatigued. For a pastor, that would be... Uh, I think it's age, honestly. Oh, really? If I were doing this 20 years ago, I think it'd be quite different. But, you know, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, whatever the opposite is, a fall turkey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right, What right. is the opposite of a spring chicken? I like fall turkey. Fall turkey. Yeah, We'll go nice. with it. That's nice. So, um, but, so years ago, you could maybe on... You'd spring out of bed on a Monday morning. Yeah, I think ready, so. Ready to hit the ground. But yeah. now, now you kind of take the little... I'm, I'm a little more tired. Okay, I gotcha. And uh, yeah. honestly, I'm trying to make peace with it. It was some advice that you gave me. Was it? What did I yeah, say? Yeah, I know. Something vague and yeah. hard to follow. But <laughs> it was about six months ago or so, you know. So what, what's it like? You, you get older? Because you're couple, you're almost I'm, two years I'm older. two years older than you are. Right. Yeah. You said, well, you have to, you know, you have to take the, the good things where you find them and... Uh, Something to that effect. Whatever it was, it was meaningful. Really? And it's helped me. I hope it was more profound than than what you read off a coffee cup. I'm being sincere. (laughs) Okay, good. Uh, Good, good, good. Vague, but sincere. So so we're both doing well. We're both doing well. We've established that. Yep. And we're ready to do some podcasting and uh, bring the classics to the people. Okay, now I'm going to ask you because this is this is uh, this is uh, this is your topic tonight. It is. Yeah, so so you we'll, don't say it's in my wheelhouse. I'm not going. to. I wouldn't say. Okay. That. I have said it, but I'm not going to say it tonight. All right. Um. So Dave, what are we talking about tonight? 
We're talking about uh, the connection between the Mycenaeans mm -hmm. and the Philistines of the book of Judges and the book of First Samuel, also mentioned in the Old Testament books of Exodus, Numbers, a couple other places, Genesis. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's based on a book by uh, a man named Neil Beerling. Yes. And uh, it's called Giving Goliath His Due. Oh, I like the title. Yep. Yeah. Subtitle, New Archaeological Light on the Philistines. Well, very interesting. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm two degrees removed from Mr. Beerling. I'd like to hear about this. Yeah. There's a bakery involved, yes. isn't there? Is and the... some pastry horns. Yes, exactly right. So I never I never met the man. Okay. But um, uh, I w in high school, I worked at Beerling's Cream Curl Bakery. Okay. Which I believe was established by... The ne Cream Curl Bakery. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, and I believe it was established by um, uh, one or two of Neil's brothers. And so my immediate boss was his nephew, who I did not care for uh -oh. very much. Uh, he was. Is he, he listening? I, I no, he's, no. He is he grown up now? He's probably different. He, I hope he's different. Yeah. But he was very unpleasant to work uh -oh. under. But he, I, what the one kind of pleasant thing I remember is that he would tell me stories about his uncle Neil, right, and the, his archaeological digs. Yes. And I remember him talking about how he would he would work on these excavations, and there were. Um, uh, the big fear were kind of uh, nighttime thieves coming in oh, yeah. and taking things, and so looting and talking about having guards standing with uh, with Uzis oh. surrounding the excavation pit so that nobody would walk away with his finds. That's pretty exciting. When you're how old were you then? I was you know sixteen. You're sixteen. That's you're, pretty exciting. It, was, it, it kind was, of breaks up a little bit the monotony it, it of did. filling cream curl right. horns. I remember. I remember it so vividly. <laughs> I'm <exciting>. laughing at you. <laughs> it was. It was just standing on a line, yeah. rolling these things, and you know, roll, Insert. roll, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Impressive. Yeah. Uh, hourly wage, or were you just paid in cream curls? It was. You know, the one of the perks was as, as much as you as can as eat. As, well, no, <laughs> this was a Dutch bakery. You were, I think, you were allowed. They, you know, you could have as many. Not as, you as want, much as you can eat, but, but. Uh, you eat two, and then they're keeping an eye on okay. you. Okay. Right? But I do remember uh, uh, Beerling's nephew talking uh, talk to me about the the guys with the Uzis. Yeah. That was so Indiana Jones. Right. right? You know, it's fascinating. fascinating. Yeah. So this book was loaned to me, uh, given to me actually by a friend, uh, Debbie, I hope she's listening, Giving Goliath His Due. Mm -hmm. And uh, let me read just a little bit of the blurb. It's Please. Um, Baker Books. Let's see, what's the date here? Baker Book is a, Books is a, a local concern. Mm -hmm. 1992. Okay. Uh, with a foreword by Paul Meyer, whom, oh, yeah. who you know is a... Ancient history professor at Western Michigan. That's right. A Bronco. He's probably retired. but He is emeritus, but yeah. That's right. So yeah. Baker Bookhouse, here's the blurb. Goliath's shorter kin were giants in their own right. Oh, Catchy, oh, huh? Nice. <laughs> Recent excavations at Tel Ekron have vastly increased understanding of the Philistines. They brought grief to Israel, but their organized society, trading empire, crafts, iron, and possibly steel production, and immense olive oil industry are worth admiring. Here is the new evidence along with references to this amazing people from Homer's Iliad and other ancient sources. Sounds good. So, you know, I'm intrigued. In, yeah. So yeah. in our, uh, I was immediately intrigued. And as I began my way through the book, the intrigue grew, you okay. might say, yeah. like a, like a pastry that's expanding with some kind of <laughs> creamy filling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like that. Right? Just like that. Right. This is a, I mean, I'm interested in a kind of cultural rehabilitation of yes. the Philistines. Because well, that's part of the purpose of the book, actually. Okay. Yeah. Because, I mean, they, they loom as, you know, yes. the, 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 the mustache twirling villain. That's right. In the, in the biblical narrative. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, not only that, but it has become a, um, a byword. For the uncouth. That's right. right. Yes. For someone who's gauche. Yes. Right. Has no sense of style, no sense of class. What? You don't go to the opera? Are the you a Philistine? Philistine? Right. Yes. 
And so this book says, hey, there was a lot more going on there, there was than, a lot than, more. Than, we, than we knew. Right. right. You scratch the surface of a Philistine, there's there's something underneath there. Now, what does this have to do with the Mycenaeans, though? Well, here's the here's the catch. Here's the connection. Okay. Right to um, the podcast, okay. like that movie, um, my big fat Greek wedding. Seen it. In which the father uh, not only uses Windex, but finds <laughs> some way to connect everything to the world of the Greeks. Right, right, right. That's the mission that we're on, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> and so um, what first got me interested in this is when I was teaching at uh, Calvin University some years back, the classical art and architecture course. Yeah. And I was making use of Ken Bratt's slides mm-hmm. because that guy, you know, was a slide master. He was. Yep. Slide maniac. Yes, that's right. He put together so much uh, fantastic material. And one of the final slides in the the course on uh, the portion of the course that concerned attic uh, pottery was a comparison between um, Philistine pottery and the pottery of the Judeans um, or the Israelites, I should say. Mm -hmm. This is long about 12th or 11th century. Okay. And what was really striking was the uh, Philistine pottery, what's called bichrome. I can never say that without thinking of the the Thor movie and all that ridiculous stuff, you know, uh, yeah. this bichrome pottery has many, um, floral and faunal themes. Okay. Right. So animals, or I should say vegetation and animals, Mm -hmm. and it's highly reminiscent of, and in fact, inspired by contemporary Mycenaean pottery. Guess what's on the Israelite pottery of the time. Tell me nothing. Really? It's completely, it's completely blank. Okay. And this is because there was a prohibition, right? The oh. uh, the second commandment against the um, a prohibition uh, against the portrayal of any kinds of engraved um, images of right. any sort. Right, right, right. And right. so I was really struck by that, and did some more investigation, which means asking Ken some questions. <laughs> and he said, "Yes, uh, the connection between the Philistines and the Mycenaeans is well established." And then this book came along. And uh, so here we go. So, um, you know, our our podcast says uh, stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. Right. right words to that effect. Yeah, right, but right, we right. haven't been covering the Mycenaeans very much. No. I can't remember the last time we, we spoke That's of right. them. That's yes. right. But I went to Mycenae recently yes. in Greece with my daughter. You and did? Okay. Uh, my interest in all things Mycenaean was refreshed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here we are. Nice. Did you uh, did you go down? Did you go down into the cellar, the the... the where you and I visited? The, the chamber? It's closed. Really? I took Sophia to it, Aww. and we were going to descend the dark staircase. It is a, it's a well, it's a cistern yeah, that yeah. was dug beneath the wall so they could surreptitiously access water uh, in times of siege. Right. Uh, but there is now an iron gate and a padlock. Oh, man. So remember how exciting that was? It was great. To go down into the dark there, and there were some students at the bottom waiting to surprise us. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's I right. Can, yeah. uh, one of them was Danielle. I can't remember. but uh, Oh, yes. I surprising us. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. So no, I didn't get to do that. Oh, well. But this is really interesting. Where did the Philistines come from? Okay. Um, why did they uh, harass the Israelites? What's their, their history, their story, their background? This book... Uh, seeks to answer that question. Okay, and this is this is rooted in uh, some archaeological work that Mr. Yes. Bailing did. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. So Dave, where are we going to start here? Well, I'd like to set the stage a little bit by looking at the most famous passage uh, concerning the Philistines and what gives the book its title, which is 1 Samuel chapter 17. All right. So I'd like to read a little bit of the Septuagint here. Notice three syllables. The Septuagint, I learned that from Rich Weavers, because it's quite interesting, and uh, then you can maybe read the translation. I will. So here we go. Kai sunagusin alafuloi tas parambalas aton es polamon kai sunagontai es sokoth tes yudaias 
Kai Parim Balusin, Ana Meson Sokoth Kai Ana Meson, Azeka N. F. Fermem, Kai Saul Kai Hoi Andres Israel, Sunagontai Kai Parambalusinente, Quiladi Autoi Paratasuntai, Es Palamon X Enantias Alafulon, Kai Alafuloi, Histantai Apitu Ordrus and Tauthaka Israel, Histatai Apitu Ordros and Tauthakai Ho Aulon, Ena Mesan Auton Kai Exelthen Aner Dunatos, Ectes Parataxeos, Ton Alafulon, Goliath. Onoma auto ek geith hupsos autu tesardrum pe kaon kai stitha mes, kai pere kefalaya, epites kefales autu kai thoraka, halusidoton, autos endectukos kai hostathmos tu thorakos, autu penta, hiliades, cyclone, kalku kai sideru, etc. Nicely done. Thank you. I wanted yeah. to get to the end there because you heard the name uh, Goliath, mm-hmm. and then I wanted to mention a little bit of the Bronze Age and iron armor because this is really key to the whole argument. Okay. So can you read uh, through, I don't know, was it verse 5, uh, verse 6 maybe? Yeah, sure. Uh, this is the NIV version. Uh, now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokoth in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Sokoth and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah, and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. Now, is that, I'm, he, that's like... I well, looked like, it up. It's a little over nine feet. Okay. That's a big guy. Yep. All right. That is a big guy. <laughs> he could start for the Lakers. Yes, absolutely. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Hmm. Now, what does that sound like to you? That sounds like a guy who can lift a lot of stuff. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. But, I mean, in terms of classical precedent and any kind of literature... It sounds very Homeric. There you go. Yes. Right. More Odyssean or Iliadic? Iliadic. Exactly. Right. It is like a scene taken directly from the Iliad. It is. Yeah. And this has always fascinated scholars. In fact, back into antiquity, there is a whole um, list of potential borrowings, so some of the early church fathers said, in Greco-Roman literature from biblical literature. Hmm. We've talked about this before, right? How it is that um, for apologetic reasons, when uh, the Christians were being mocked by their pagan neighbors, you know, you, you have all that biblical literature, but it isn't that impressive. The response of the apologists was, well, our stuff is original, Mm. And you just ripped us off. Right. Right. So Hercules is actually... Samson. Exactly. Right. And uh, Samson's going to play into this story as well, because he had quite a bit of uh, interaction with the Philistines at a place called Timna and a place called Gath uh, and the five cities that make up the Philistine Pentapolis, which is something I didn't know about until I began reading this book. Sounds really interesting. So if I'm kind of seeing where the math is going... Correct. Is are we making the argument that... If like a figure like Goliath, a figure like Samson, we see them with their with their classical um, corollaries. Right. That these are stories that are being filtered through the Philistines to the Mycenaeans. Well, that's possible. Okay. That's not a claim that the book makes or that uh, contemporary scholars make. Okay. Uh, most notably, um, M. L. West. Yeah. You know the book, The East Face of Helicon. Yeah. By M. L. West. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I looked through that today. I haven't read the whole thing yet. I'm also making my way through it. 
and I looked at the Samson Heracles um, comparisons, mm-hmm. and he doesn't want to commit to anything. Yeah. Um, and I don't think there's any uh, very clear trail. He comes down along the lines of this is um, like Enkidu. This this is a type. Samson, it's Heracles. The, it's the strongman archetype. Exactly. Right, right. But my point with the early Christian apologists is that their response to the uh, the taunt, your stories are ridiculous and, mm. and so forth, was, well, our stories are original. Yeah. And the story of Samson got turned into the story of Heracles and adopted by the Greeks. Yes. So that's always been, you know, in the air and disputed. What's really interesting about this book and recent archaeology is that leaving aside literary questions, it establishes without a doubt that the Philistines were Mycenaeans. And in fact, they were probably at Troy. Oh. And there's tremendous inscriptional evidence. There's a lot of evidence uh, from uh, Egyptian steels and so forth. Okay. There's a little bit of a Hittite evidence. It's a dense book. And so in this episode, we're going to kind of walk through it a little bit at a time and try to get some clarity because it, to me, it's a fascinating topic, but it's complicated. Could you say a little bit more that when you, when you make that claim, the Philistines were Mycenaeans, uh, what do you mean by that? Because I think when a lot of people think Mycenaeans, oh, these are, well, that's, those are, you know, proto-Greek. They had their own Greek, uh, you know, Mycenaean inscriptions such as they are that we find the names of Zeus right. and Dionysus. How can the Philistines be Mycenaean? So I mean, just what exactly do you mean by that? Well, to answer that question, we have to skip ahead really to the middle of the book a little bit. Okay. To the chapter entitled The Origins of the Philistines. Okay. So I'd like to read a little bit from page 69. Please. The names Akish, which is one of the the places and the persons, and Goliath are not Semitic names. Okay. So they're not uh, Semitic languages like Hebrew and um, Phoenician. And to continue, and parallels to these names may be found on Crete and in Western Anatolia, Western Turkey. The biblical Akish may have had the same name as the Dardanian Anchises, the father of Aeneas from the Troad. The Dardanians were also on the list by Ramses II, this is a pharaoh uh, contemporary, mm-hmm. of the Hittite allies. Some sources, says Beerling, when discussing the origins of the Philistine names in the Bible, will mention the Luwian language. The Luwian language, according to extra-biblical material, was used in Western Anatolia in the late Bronze Age, the end of which witnessed the movement of the Sea Peoples. Oh, the mysterious we, Sea we Peoples. we got to talk about the Sea Peoples. Okay. That's right. Among the people who spoke Luwian were the Lycians, mentioned in ancient lists as Hittite allies, as Trojan allies, and later as one group among the Sea Peoples who invaded Egypt. Okay. All right. So, just to summarize, the evidence is really of two types. It's archaeological evidence of Mycenaean and what's called um, LH3C, Late Hellatic 3C pottery, okay. that's found um, in the archaeological remains throughout Philistia. In the five cities, the Pentapolis. I'm okay. just going to mention a couple of them. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod. Those are three. Okay. So Mycenaean pottery is found there. And then um, there are settlements on Crete that have Anatolian and uh, other kinds of names that are similar to the Philistine names that are recorded in the Bible. Okay. Okay. So it's a, it's a highly circumstantial case. Yes. Because we have no Philistine literature. Right. There, right. There's no um, in Philistine inscriptions. The closest that there is um, is a little bit of a, um, an, an inscription on a bulla, a seal, right, that's used for sealing documents, mm-hmm. a picture of a, a seated lyre player, and what could possibly be some linear A script. Okay. The undeciphered stuff. Okay. I, I mean, I, I mean that that uh, linguistic evidence of the names is, I had never heard this before. But I hadn't either. I mean, that strikes me as, as really persuasive on the face of yes. it. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. One of the complicating factors, however, is that the Philistines, as they're presented in the scriptures, are more of an amalgam of different kinds of cultural practices. For example, in what you just read from 1 Samuel 17, Mm -hmm. we have a lot of elements that sound like it's straight out of the Iliad, right? Yes. He's got a spear like a weaver's loom. It's basically something Homer says. Uh, The tip of the spear is iron. He's got a cuirass, right? A a breastplate. Mm -hmm. He's got a bronze helmet. He's got greaves, right? And the the Septuagint word there is elknimedes, right? Same word that's used, well-greaved in Homer. So that's how the... um, the translators of the Septuagint took that Hebrew word. Uh, he is, in, in other words, a Bronze Age warrior, but it also mentions scale armor. Yeah. And if you caught that little, uh, I saw that. Yeah. That, that little uh, fact, and that's not a part of uh, Homeric armor generally. That it's um, in scales, right? Right. 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 So right. what seems to be the solution to this inconsistency is that when the Philistines, the Mycenaeans, when they entered that region, they quickly assimilated to the local peoples. So there were Canaanites living there, and mm-hmm. in east, there eventually were Israelites. And so they took up a lot of the um, practices of the people around them. Yeah. So it became, their culture became, I mean, not in a moral sense, but diluted. Yeah. So you can't compare it exactly to Mycenaean stuff. Yeah, that is really interesting. You know, I've always said, if you're going to bother to be grieved, you might as well be well right? <laughs> How long were you holding <laughs> on to that? But I mean, to uh, to extend the point of the uh, you know the straight out of the straight out of the Iliad, uh, you know, in the action that follows, where Goliath says, "Hey, let's settle this one champion against another." I mean, that's that's Menelaus versus Paris, right? Right. That's so. You know, why 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 bother have the armies clash? Let's just have the the the, the duel correct. settle the whole the thing. The duomachia. That's that's Homeric. That's right. Yeah. And there's even more to that. It's this the notion of the man in the middle, right? That the, there's an individual between the two lines of battle, and that man in the middle mediates in mm. some sense between the two forces mm. in order to um, to settle the conflict. Yeah. So to try to set the stage a little bit um, archaeologically, there's yeah. quite a bit of material to go through here. Uh, I want to look at uh, one of the early chapters of the book, which is Ekron, one of the uh, Philistine cities, the archaeological record. Okay. All right. So here's what we find on page 38. Current excavations, this was in the 90s, indicate that the original Canaanite inhabitants, this is at Ekron, were already at the site in the 15th or 14th century BC. So 15th, 14th, this is the 1400s, the 1300s, when the Israelites are still in Egypt. During the late Bronze II period, so 1400 through 1200, this original settlement and perhaps a second one may have been unwalled. Excavation rooms have yielded vessels and installations indicating both domestic and industrial activity. A burial site containing artifacts dating to this early period was uncovered at the edge of the mound. Interestingly, many of the artifacts uncovered have their origins in other lands. So a Philistine city of Ekron being excavated, Mm -hmm. to summarize, the uh, artifacts are from the Aegean, from Cyprus, from Anatolia, and from Egypt. So these finds, says Beerling, corroborate the international flavor that even the biblical Joseph stories dating from the same period give glimpses of. Okay, okay, okay. So one criterion to continue marking the transition from late bronze to the Iron Age has always been the cessation of imports from the Aegean and Cyprus into Canaan. Okay. So what happened apparently was during this vast migratory time, when you get the Sea Peoples, mm-hmm. uh, of whom n- nobody knows exactly who they are, but the Egyptians record these uh, marauding Sea Peoples right. who land and invade. One theory is that these were the Nostoi, 
the Greeks who are returning from Troy. Right. And like the, the Mycenaeans. Right. And the, the, the timeline would roughly match up with that, right? So if, if, the, if the Trojan War, whatever it was, is taking place around 1200 BC, then we're right in that, uh, we're right within the, the parameters for that, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yep. So just to continue a little bit uh, from 38 and into 39, the international mixture of artifacts found in the late bronze layer of earth at Tel Minkt, which is Ekron, uh, the, the Philistine city of Ekron, is not present in the next layer, signaling the end of the late bronze age there. It was during the following iron period, 1200 to 1000, however, with the arrival of the Philistines that Ekron became a settlement of note a place name on ancient maps, and a reference in ancient historical texts. This was the period of Joshua, the judges, and those people caught up in the conflicts reported in the stories of 1 Samuel. Hmm. So just to kind of give a sense of the chronology, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the Bible talks about the, the uh, people of Israel migrating into this part of Canaan, um, 1400, 1300, something like that. Then right. there's a rule by judges, and then around the year 1000... Uh, is the time that King David begins to rule. Right. For which there is now, after many years, some um, small but reliable archaeological evidence yeah, for the house of David. Right, non-Israelite evidence, right? You, That's I've right. That. His, his name is mentioned on, on a stele. That's uh, right. Yeah, right. I've seen that. Yep. yep. So what's happening, you know, in the Greek world, so to speak, at the same time? Well, the traditional date for the fall of Troy by Eratosthenes, 1183. Yep. And the the uh, Dorpfeld um, Blagan date it's about 1235. Yeah. So all of this stuff is happening pretty much at the same time. Right. And in in terms of, you know, the you were talking about the cessation of imports. Right. Um that strikes me well because what's what's happening on the Greek mainland right after the Trojan War whatever it was is that you get the beginnings of the dark age, right? So on the mainland, uh things are going silent. Right. Right? And so that would make if that if what follows in in Palestine that you have the cessation of imports. Well, that's because there's no, there was nobody making anything to import it. Exactly. Right. Yep. Interesting. And then to go on to page 40, um, at Ashdod, that's another very important Philistine city, at Ashdod and Ekron, the two chief Philistine sites where stratigraphic excavation, that means layer by layer, has occurred, this new pottery was found directly above the late bronze layer. This is the Mycenaean pottery. I'm sorry, the, the Philistine bichrome. The pottery is identical in style and decor to that excavated on Cyprus, but it's locally made. Therefore, at both sites, it is called Mycenaean 3C1B. Um, someone should shout bingo at this point. <laughs> it will be developed in chapter 3 that the, quote, Achaean refugees on Cyprus, the Achaean refugees, were the ancestors of the Philistines in what came to be called Philistia in Canaan. Okay. So that's, right. that's the basic argument. All right. The All pottery... Right. Uh, the descriptions, even in the scriptures, are remarkably reminiscent of Mycenaean practices. Apparently, the Philistines all wore um, feathered headdresses. The chieftains wore feathered headdresses. Apparently, it was something uh, not so different from the, like the Lakota Sioux, right? Really? Okay. When you think about, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't identical, yeah, but yeah, yeah. when I think of feathered headdresses, I think of sitting bull and crazy right. horses. Yeah. Beautiful and elaborate, highly artistic. Yeah. Uh, as a child, those were so impressive to me. Right. Do you ever go through a stage of fascination oh, with yeah. with Native Americans? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was really fascinated. Yeah, by definitely. That. Now, the, the the headdress stuff is that coming from the archaeological record? Is that is that mentioned in in biblical literature? Or, or no, the, but we get it from the Egyptians. Okay. They play a part in this story. Okay. Big part. Okay. So here's uh, page fifty three. 
So in uh, Egyptian descriptions of the second attack of the Sea Peoples, mm -hmm. maybe that should be the title of this episode, the Sea Peoples. <laughs> now you see them, now you don't. There <laughs> you go. Uh, the second attack of the Sea Peoples by land and sea occurred during the reign of Pharaoh Ramses III, years 5 and 8, around 1175. Hmm. hmm. That's pretty close. Yes. The battle scenes and names of the invaders are recorded at Medinet Habu near Thebes in Upper Egypt, citing Pritchard, 1969. And there's a list of names recorded at this site in okay. this Egyptian artistic representation of a battle. The first name on the list is Parasita Peleset, which is the Philistines. Okay. Yeah. So he says, quote, the first on the list are the Philistines. The second are the Checker, who may have settled on Cyprus at the end of the 13th century BC. So it'd be 1201, something like that. And who later settled in Dor, south of Mount Carmel on the Palestinian coast, according to a late 12th and an 11th century BC Egyptian document. Then there are several pages of scenes of uh, details of a relief sculpture showing the Egyptians fighting against and succeeding against the Sea Peoples. And this is where we find the headdresses, right? Oh, okay. It looks kind of like a brush. In fact, it's not so much like the Lakota Sioux as I imagined it, but it's more like um, kind of a scrub brush right on top. Okay. Like Hector from the Iliad yes. with his glimmering, shimmering helmet. Right, 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 right. right. It has that horsehair plume that flows in the back. Indeed. Indeed. This is, okay, this is really, this is striking. Okay. I'm, I mean, and this is, I mean, this is fascinating because this is all kind of brand new to me. I mean, I remember, you know, reading about the mysterious sea peoples, but I've never heard about these um, potential connections to right. the Homeric legends and the kind of the quasi history behind it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating. Nobody still knows who the sea peoples are. Right. And uh, I don't know exactly the, the state of the scholarship since this book was published. I did look into another article that's more recent. I mean, it's recent by classics standards, right? right. Uh, and this is an article from 2010 uh, written by a guy named Jeffrey Zorn okay. uh, from Cornell. And the title is Reconsidering Goliath in Iron Age One Philistine Chariot Warrior. Is, okay, now is, so go ahead. In, is, is he is Mr. Zorn aware of Beerling's book? Does he kind of yes? Okay. Although I didn't find it in the bibliography, but maybe I just didn't search carefully. Okay, enough. Uh, but the 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 point that Zorn is making is that those mixture of elements that we mentioned in the uh, description of Goliath, the mixture of elements, they don't fit exactly a Mycenaean warrior. Okay, the scale, uh, armor, and some of the other things. If you compare that to a Mycenaean kind of hoplite or infantryman in the kind that you see in the frescoes from Tiryns mm -hmm. and the frescoes from Mycenae and Pelos and other places doesn't quite perfectly match. Okay. So Zorn's thesis is, well, that's because you, we've been trying to think of him as an infantryman. What if he was actually uh, a chariot warrior? Okay. That would explain the mix of elements. Okay. All right. That plus the Philistines adopting local practices okay all right okay. so that would explain that would explain what exactly just the the, the different combination of what he's wearing? yes okay. yes all right all right dave so we've looked at these the 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 pottery connections right um the egyptians talking about the sea peoples right what other evidence is there that bringing the mycenaeans and the philistines to, together right well there's the the lists of names on um crete mm -hmm. and on cyprus there's the kaftor uh or the kaftorim which are mentioned in the uh, account of uh, King David. The Kaftarim were part of David's um, special bodyguard, mm -hmm. and they seem to have been uh, Cretans or perhaps from Cyprus. Uh, really? 
No matter what okay. the case is, they're not Semitic peoples. Okay. They're, they're not from uh, that part of the world. They're from the Aegean or the Dodecanese, maybe, off the west coast of Anatolia. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot more going on in terms of the movement of peoples uh, than one would think. Uh, yeah. One of the early comments in the book is that 50, 60 years ago, no one would have read the Old Testament and tried to compare it to Mycenaean um, and Minoan archaeology and tried to find connections. Right. But so much has been discovered since that time that connects all these people groups. There's far more movement than we ever realized. Right. And it's just, it strikes me as you're talking as well as that, um, making maybe one of these you know, geography as destiny arguments is that the uh, Philistine is coastal. Right. right. So they would have much more, you know, cross-cultural exchange with these other peoples than uh, in more inland people like the Israelites. Would, that's right. right? And so maybe that's one of the reasons, just broadly speaking, we see a lot more kind of um, their culture as a hodgepodge. That's correct. And in the Israelite uh, culture as, as being more monolithic. Exactly. Yeah. Before we look at some of that other evidence, I just wanted to mention this. It's a little earlier in the book. It's about how uh, important Ekron was, one of these Philistine cities, Yeah, a little bit after this time. So this is pr- from page uh, 45. The end of the 8th century, so this getting out of the Greek Dark Age, through the 7th century BC was the period during which Ekron developed its reputation as a producer of olive oil. 20th century engineers have estimated, based on the number of installations uncovered, these are uh, olive oil presses and such, mm-hmm. that Ekron's olive oil production could have been upwards of 1,000 tons or 290,000 gallons in a season. Wow. This would equal 20% of Israel's olive oil production for export today in you know 1991. That's, so this was massive. That's incredible. So yeah. whoever was living, the Philistines of Ekron in the 8th and 7th centuries, massively productive and prosperous. Right. Now it's all, you know, disputed territory between um, Israel and the Palestinians and, you know, buried well underneath the sand. Right, right, But right. at one time it was hugely successful and um, commercially profitable. Right. So there's some counter evidence to the the way we use that, the term Philistine. There you uh, go, right in there. A derogatory sense, nice. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So let's go back to the feathered headdresses. Yeah. We'll yeah. talk about a couple other pieces of evidence, and uh, then we have a big surprise coming up after the break. Excellent. All right, so this is page 59. The feathered headdresses we were talking about, according to Herodotus and a late Assyrian text, are typical of Caria and Lycia, western Turkey, during the Bronze Age. Later, the same style of headdress is also worn by Ionian and Carian warriors in an Assyrian relief and by a Lycian contingent in Xerxes' fleet. Herodotus states that the Greeks are indebted to them, the Carians, for three inventions, fitting crests on helmets, putting devices on shields, and making shields with handles. Hmm. The Iliad, however, does not describe a feathered helmet similar to that of the Sea Peoples, though it does describe various other types of helmets. The feathered headdresses, here's the good part, also appear on a ceramic anthropoid coffin. Anthropoid? Right, Mm human-shaped. Uncovered at Beth Sheen in Israel. The coffin dates to approximately 1040 BC, roughly the time of King Saul's reign and his death in the area by Philistine hands. According to 1 Samuel chapter 31, Saul's body was hung by the Philistines at Beth Sheen. Anthropoid coffins have been found at other sites associated with Egyptian rule in both Egypt and Canaan. In addition, feathered headdresses appear on sea people warriors pictured on a 12th century ivory game box and on a conical seal from Cyprus. The distinctive feathered headdress clearly seems to belong to the sea peoples, the Philistines in particular. 
Now, in this particular uh, chapter right here, there is an image of this anthropoid coffin. So yeah. it's a coffin shaped like a human being. It looks kind of like, um, do you remember that toy, the Weeble Wobbles? Yes. And when you showed me the pictures, the yes. first thing I thought, it's a Weeble Wobble. You did? Yes. Yeah. So they Weeble and they Wobble. But well, they don't fall down. But they can't fall down. Because <laughs> right. they have so, they're kind of a weighted bottom. Yes, exactly. Right? Shaped like an egg. Yeah. yeah. It would be pretty convenient, frankly. Yeah. But, um, there's a picture of the anthropoid coffin, and Jeff. Yes. What does this look like? It's it is the the so-called mask of Agamemnon. Yes, it's, it's a, it is crazy how 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 similar they it's are. It's a dead ringer. It is the ears, the eyes, the nose, the uh, almondic eyes, yes. right? And what where does that date from? Did it say? Uh, Ten forty. Okay. So this is, you know, if the mask of Agamemnon is legit, we covered this right in our episode, uh, Schliemann. Right. I think. If it's legit, it probably dates to around 1400. Yes. Um, that's the, the best guess. But they still were using this style a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in Athens recently and we went to the archaeological museum, you walk in and there it is glaring at you front and center. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my daughter said, hey, that's the mask of Agamemnon. Oh, man. That must have been a proud moment. Oh, boy. That yeah. just warmed my heart. <laughs> that warmed my heart. She recognized that. Yeah. It's, you know, it's important. Yes. So. It's a dead ringer. It's unbelievable. It is incredible. Yep. So coincidence? It can't be. No, it can't. It cannot be. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I maybe, I, I guess maybe when you're kind of soaked in this stuff, you kind of see what you want to see. But, right. But I think if you were to put those two side by side, right? Um, they're it's the same. Template. Shockingly similar. Shockingly similar. Yep. Definitely um, a template or a type, not the work of an. I mean, clearly the work of an individual artist. Yeah. But not an individual artist coming up with the presentation. From his own imagination, right? But working to a, a well-received and preconceived pattern. Exactly. I mean, I'd never point to say that and say that was our one piece of evidence. This is proof of, of a connection. But no. when you said it alongside all of these other things, that's right. It just it it, you're, it builds a the epigraphic evidence, yeah. the the pottery evidence, the ceramic evidence. It's really quite overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, one final item is that some of these things were found in what are called chamber tombs. Um, now, every different people group buries their dead in a different way. Mm-hmm. We talk about death a lot on this podcast. Yes, we do. Yeah. yeah. And so chamber tombs are a standard Mycenaean uh, burial method. Yeah. And uh, the Philistines used it too. Yeah. Incredible. Yep. Right. So, Jeff, here's where you have to insert something that's yes. a little bit incongruous, but introduces the advertisements. Well, it's, the advertisements. Speaking of cultures burying their dead in various ways, <laughs> it's time for the ads. This episode of Odd Nauseam is brought to you by the good folks at Ratio Coffee. Dave, I got a good uh, a personal story about Ratio I'd Coffee. I'd love to hear it. All right, so recently I was at my parents' house. And my parents aren't, aren't all that big into coffee. They got one of those squirty Blanc and Drucker machines, right? Oh, uh, yeah. But you still visit. Well, I, I visited and we, we had coffee that day. And we were about to leave and I was I, it was getting late and I was realizing... I don't have coffee at the house okay. for the for the next morning. Do, do your parents give you the business, by the way? About, the business about... Don't you remember on uh, Leave it to Beaver? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're always giving me Eddie the business. Eddie Haskell's going to give him the business? Yeah. Exactly. My parents are always giving me the business. Are they going to give you the business about your hoity-toity coffee machine? Oh, uh, they, they sneer a little yeah, bit. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. Anyway, so, you realized... I realized I didn't have any coffee for the next morning, and my and I, I 
I mentioned it out loud. My mom says, oh, just take some of our coffee. And I, oh. And so I thought. Oh, How I, loving of your mother. She's she's a wonderful woman. But I had drank some of this coffee from their machine and it, mm. it, was, it was not great. So she wanted you to hold it over from the night before to the next morning? She, she had she had grounds. Oh. Right. So it wasn't like, it wasn't brewed. It's just, just well, just take these grounds and put it in your machine. That's not going to go with but, a pastry horn. I, tell me about it. Right. So I thought, okay, well, this, this saves me a trip to the store. Right. So I took it home. And I was expecting, okay, it's, you know, it's just not, it's not good coffee, but Mm-mm. I'll tell you what happened. I put that grounds in my machine. No way. And I will, I, I would never say that it, it turned it into, it wasn't miraculous, but it tastes remarkably better. Interesting. And I credit the Bloom stage. So this is a real life uh, trial run kind of a thing. Um, we have we have empirical evidence. Yes. Tell me about the bloom stage. The, well, the bloom stage is where all, you know, the you know all that nasty CO two gets off gas, which my parents' machine has no interest in doing. Your parents' machine won't off gas. Oh, it will not off gas. It just right? get, it on gases. Right. So I, I went there in the morning thinking, okay, I'm going to have to suffer through uh, just another bad cup of right. coffee. But the ratio machine, it's not just the grounds. Okay. It's, it's the machine that does the work. That's impressive. And I was I was, uh, I was, was really struck by that and very, very pleased. Excellent. So, yeah. Excellent. I, I can't add anything to that other yeah. than I had a great uh, pot of coffee this morning. Excellent. Compliments of the ratio eight in my barraza grinder. Oh, nice. My well, wait, wait, burr roll, grinder. Roll that R. Barraza. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Let's say, Jeff, that mm-hmm. uh, someone's listening to this podcast, yes. just humor me, yep. and they think, oh, I'm convinced. I'd like to get one of those fancy coffee yes. machines. Well, well, then what they need to do is go to ratiocoffee.com and pick one of these wonderful machines, the ratio eight or its younger brother, the ratio six. And I click on the one you like and enter this coupon code. A-N-C-O-3-N. Yes, A-N-C-O-3-N. What does the N stand for? Um, Nice. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Check it out. Check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseam is also brought to you by the good folks at Hackett Publishing with offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, not too far from the New England Patriots, and in Indianapolis, Indiana, not too far from the... Colts. Indianapolis Colts. Yeah, there you go. You think they're reading uh, some Hackett stuff? I would hope so. Should we be highbrow and elitist? Right. Um, you had mentioned a while ago that there was some uh, NFL football I player. I can never remember his name. Was leading kind of, He's the quarterback. Group? His last name is Luck. It's Andrew Luck, I think, okay. is his name. All right. Yes, he was, reading, he was leading a reading group among his linemen, and guess what they were reading? What were they reading? The Iliad. Fantastic. Exactly. Right. So you know he's reading some Hackett. Of course. Works. Yeah. So who is Hackett, and why should our listeners care? Hackett is this group that they've been with us from um, almost the very beginning of this podcast. They believed in our plucky little enterprise here, but these guys have been publishing... Um, uh, beautiful, well-designed, attractive, and I think most importantly, affordable editions and translations of classical works among, and also works from many other uh, different areas of academia uh, for 52 years now. Mm-hmm. And we've used their books in our classes. We've got them on our shelves. Um, they're, they're one of these, these, these companies that is keeping the flame alive. That's right. A little Q&A for you, Winkle. Yep. Uh, in your classical mythology course right now, what, yes. are, they, what are they reading? They are reading uh, Homer's Odyssey. Uh, it's a Hackett publication, isn't it? Yes, it is Lombardo's translation of the okay. Odyssey. Hackett. So yeah. just a few hours ago, we're not going to name this individual, mm-hmm. I encountered in a uh, a friendly, sociable setting yeah. a student who was in your class. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And this, uh, this young person, uh, see, I'm even not revealing the gender. Yeah. This young person um, was doing the reading for the course, mm-hmm. and uh, Mrs. Noe asked this young person, so how is it? And they said, you know, the reading's good. Uh, it's a lot of reading, but I really enjoyed it. It's it's the kind of thing I'm naturally interested in. Okay. And I didn't say anything, yes. but I was thinking, 
Mm, mm. They're reading something from Hackett, probably Lombardo's Odyssey. That's exactly right. And I was right. That's fantastic. Uh, I love to hear that. Right. Yeah. Um, I often hear that from my students who like who have never read Homer before, and they're expecting something stodgy Dry. and old and stiff, and it's just it's engaging. It's it's readable, and my students love it because you can get uh, a brand new copy of of Homer's Odyssey from from uh for hacker from about for about eight dollars that's incredible yes and it's not it's not low quality either no attractive cover uh high quality translation indices introduction appendix glossary of names everything everything very nicely done so dave if um okay. pe- people are interested in getting one of these books what should they do they should go to hackett publishing that's p-u-b i'm sorry that's what h-a-c-k-e-t-t hackettpublishing.com uh, peruse the aisles uh, pick out some titles, drop them into your little grocery satchel, mm-hmm. and then at checkout, enter this coupon code. Yes, AN2023. And what does that get them, Jeff? That will get them two wonderful things, 20% off their entire order and free shipping. Check it out. All right, Dave, uh, as we get back into it, you promised a, a bombshell, I believe, yes. or, or, or two. So what do we got? Well, I guess this is probably well known to other people, but uh, you and I, we, we try to be well read. We're not going to trot out our credentials or anything, but yeah. this is our area of expertise and interest. Mm-hmm. There's still so much I don't know. Right. Well, I think it's astounding. Part of the problem, I, I talk about this in my myth class when students ask, it's like, well, you know, why are we doing just Greek mythology? You know, right. why not Norse mythology or Egyptian, or whatever? And I often say to them, I said, well... You know, one of the reasons is that um, we, by necessity of organization, we put things things in these boxes, Correct. right? And it's not prejudice. No. It's convenience. It's convenience, right? So, But when you do that, I think you miss a lot of this, this right. crossover stuff, which right. is so fascinating. Well, I mean, I suppose I should say maybe sometimes it is prejudice. That's not my motive. It's just I'm limited in how much I can do. Yeah. And you have to have a way to organize. Exactly. Uh, but some of this, you know, crossover material is relatively new. So we're going to go to, um, I think it's the third chapter, uh, page 71. We've been here before, but this is uh, the origins of the Philistines. Okay. So I need to read a fairly lengthy quote. So, you know, maybe get your, your cup of coffee out of your ratio eight. Find a nice place to sit down. Don't turn the lights down too low. No. Uh, someone said recently, my voice is very soothing. Oh, nice. I didn't like that, especially. No, <laughs> <laughs> no it's okay. Okay. If my voice puts you to sleep, I've, I've done my work. All right. So uh, page 71. It is known from Egyptian records that the attacks on the Egyptians by the sea peoples from the Aegean occurred during the second half of the 13th century. Okay. So it's 1250 to 1200. So right? that's again, Trojan War Fall era. of Troy. Yep. Yeah. And the first half of the 12th century. Again, fall of Troy. Again, in the Bible, this is the period of the judges, which ends with Samuel in the 11th century. Our examination of the Bible thus far has concentrated on specific verses and words, which have helped answer our questions about who the Philistines were and where they came from. Now, we didn't cover a lot of that evidence. You can look it up. You can use any kind of concordance. Uh, but I was surprised at... Um, how often the Philistines are mentioned, mm-hmm. how it's uh, some, uh, there's one mention in Genesis, how it's then somewhat late and then they just fall off the map altogether. Okay. That, yeah. was, that was interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. But to continue the quote, the Bible also contains a story which can be used to examine the relationship between the Philistines, the Aegean and Western Anatolia, and even suggests that some of the Philistine forebears may have been Mycenaean Greeks pl- present on the plains of Troy in that classic battle for Troy between the Achaeans and the Trojans in the second half of the 13th century BC. Everyone still awake? All right. 
First Samuel chapters 4 through 6 records the capture of the Ark of the Covenant by the Philistines due to the incorrect assumption on the part of the Israelites that taking the Ark into battle guaranteed the presence of God on their side. Mm. You remember the story, yes. right? They say, well, we're going to go fight against the Philistines. Let's get the Ark. Right. And so they treat it like a totem and they take it into battle. But because they're not really honoring God, he doesn't, you know, let them use this box as a magic tool and they lose. Yeah. So it's very different from that scene at the end of the first Raiders of the Lost Ark. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, of course. Can you describe it a little bit? Are you talking about where they, when they open it up? Yes, that and there's that terrible uh, 1980s animation <laughs> right. kind of. Exactly. So with the Nazis, they're, 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 I mean, they're all dressed up looking like they're conducting some sort of Jewish ritual. Yes. Um, but then they open up the, the, uh, the top of the Ark and out comes some kind of avenging angel. Which yes. Which kind of sends lightning through everybody who has their eyes open. Right. Right. And kills them all. Yes. So... No magic power, uh, if you read 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6. The Lord God of Israel caused great consternation, to continue the quote, and death by means of a plague among the Philistines while the ark was in their hands. And so the Philistine lords joined together to plan how to return the ark to Israel. It's almost comic, right? They defeat the Israelites, they take the ark, but wherever they take the device, uh, they have a plague and they, they keep dying. Right. right. There's that famous... Uh, Part about it being placed in the temple of their god, Dagon. Yes. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But to continue, the ritual used by the Philistines to return the ark in 1 Samuel 6 has an older and parallel account in the Iliad, book one. Now, to say that it's older is somewhat um, questionable. Right. Well, I mean, when you're dealing with, you know, both of these things surely stemmed from oral accounts first, right? I think uh, so. Yeah, and it's, and when you do that, there, it's uh, it's undateable. Well, so there's several different schools of thought, right? So I believe in the inspiration of the scriptures, and so I think that the Holy Spirit was inspiring the account. But of course, I still think someone wrote it down, and this account may have been first handed from person to person orally, like you said, mm -hmm. preserved and then written down. I think the majority of the scholarship thinks the story is late. Uh, the more conservative scholarship to which I subscribe think that the story was written down early, but then there's also the possibility that it was edited later on. However, this, the writing down of the Iliad, right, is 780 at earliest, right. which is almost 500 years after the events. So to summarize, it's very complicated. It is. And, and as I understand it, um, um, is it also part of the scholarship that a lot of the Jewish scriptures were compiled and edited after the return from Babylon. Yes, right. So around, that's certainly possible. Around five hundred ish. Yes, or even yeah. later. That's certainly possible. Yes. Whether those edits um, entailed any substantive changes, right? I don't know. I'm skeptical of that, but who knows? There's just so exactly. much uncertainty. Exactly right. So yeah, you're, this gets back to when you when you start using world, words terms like older. Right. You're opening up a Pandora's box. That's right. Yeah. Oh, nicely done. Thank you. Okay, so the ritual used by the Philistines to return the Ark in 1 Samuel 6 has an older and parallel account in the Iliad, and to a lesser extent is similar to a Hittite Arzawan ritual. Uh, Beerling says, I believe that the similarities between the rituals used in the Iliad Book 1 and the ritual used later by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 6 provide us with evidence that some of the biblical Philistines were Achaean. Okay. Greek. Okay. It is logical to assume that the Sea Peoples, when they migrated from the Aegean and from western Anatolia, and the plains of Ilium to Egypt and Palestine carried with them the stories and rituals of their culture. So okay. I've been reading a lot. Jeff, yes. can you take this part 
and point out some of the remarkable similarities Absolutely. in these two stories. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to read it as as uh, Beerling has it laid out here. And so the the um, parallel texts are First Samuel five and six, which is the story of um, the Philistines um, holding the Ark of the Covenant uh, captured as a trophy, and um, paralleled with uh, a scene from Book One of the Iliad, where the Achaeans um, are holding Chryses, the um, uh, the the daughter of the of the priest of Apollo, Chryseis, the daughter of Chryses. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and so. Uh, how do you think I should, should I just read Just one? maybe, there's two columns, right? Yes. So maybe just read one from the left column, which is the first Samuel, isn't it, is it yes. not? And then one from the right column. And then kind of just go back and forth? Exactly, because okay, I, I think that has the greatest impact in terms of the tremendous similarities. Agreed. Okay, so starting here with first Samuel. Um, the, Phil- the Philistines hold the Ark of God, a trophy of war. Iliad. The Achaeans hold the daughter of Chryses, a priest of Apollo Smintheus. Okay, so they both have mm-hmm. um, trophies. Some prize. Yep. 1 Samuel, Yahweh sends a deadly plague upon the Philistines as a penalty. Iliad, with his arrows, Apollo inflicts a deadly plague on the Achaeans. 1 Samuel, an assembly of the people and the Philistine chiefs is called in each city. Iliad, an assembly of the troops and chiefs is also called. 1 Samuel, the Philistines call for the priests and diviners. Uh, Iliad, the Achaeans call for a prophet or priest or even an interpreter of dreams. Calchas, right? Yeah, that's is right. his name. Yes. Uh, for Samuel, they determine that the ark must be returned with guilt offerings. And uh, in the Iliad, the Greeks determine that the daughter must be returned with holy offerings. For Samuel, gold models are made of uh, of the tumors and mice and rats. This is so interesting. Yeah, so the, the tumors are the tumors that were occurring on the people as a result of the plague yes kind of the like bubonic exactly what it is that's what beerling says are you reading ahead no i'm not it's a bubonic plague yeah and then to compare that with the iliad apollo here is called and i believe this is the only place in in the the corporate story is called smintheus he's the mouse god the god of the plague well it means the smiter of mice you look in any i mean you probably knew that but you look in any kind of a commentary on that passage like the alan rogers uh benner text i remember this so clearly Looking up, oh, what does Smintheus mean? I wish I knew what that means. It means he who hits mice. I thought, what in the world? That's crazy. A mouse smacker. Right. <laughs> smacker o' mice. Wow. But apparently it is he who wards off bubonic plague yeah. by destroying the rodents who carry it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, carrying on. First uh, Samuel, the oxen carrying the ark and the offerings are driven toward the land of the enemy. In the Iliad, the oxen for the offering are placed on board a ship because Chryses lives on an island. That's right. And of course, Odysseus is made in, uh, put in charge of that ship. He's the captain. That's right. To deliver the oxen to Chryses. Yeah. For Samuel, the Philistine chiefs follow the ark. In the Iliad, a chief and a select crew are chosen to accompany the daughter. And then finally, in First Samuel, upon, upon arrival, uh, the oxen are sacrificed. And in the Iliad, upon arrival... The oxen are sacrificed. That's the last element in the comparison. That is extraordinary. It is. Right? It is. And that cannot be coincidental. No. no. And the way that I understand it, um, I think the way that Beerling understands it and wants us to take it, um, is that he's not suggesting that the Iliad account was inspired by the account in 1 Samuel 4 through 6. Right. He's not uh, suggesting that the the vice versa is true that the Samuel account was inspired by the Iliad. Mm-hmm. He is suggesting that in the Iliad, we have a record of how the Mycenaeans responded to a plague and some kind of threat to the health of the community. Yeah. And because the Philistines are descended from the Mycenaeans, we have the very same kind of ritual 
described in First Samuel four. Right. It would it would it would stand to reason that they would uh, follow the same kind of script for yes. dealing with a similar kind of problem. It's incredible, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And so they made a models of the tumors and of the mice out of gold. Yes. <laughs> As an offering. Right. And then the Philistines, they can't get rid of the ark fast enough. Yeah. Give it back to the Israelites because look at what it's doing to us. Right, right, right. I was, yeah, I found that, uh, I always found that scene kind of, uh, you know, unintentionally kind of comic. Right. They can't get rid of it fast enough. Right. Now you are, um, you're teaching uh, world religions, right? I am. And um, this could potentially be called comparative religion, I I suppose. Sure. Um, How does one, Jeff, here's a, here's a heavy question. Yeah. How does one do this kind of thing without um, trafficking and syncretism, right? Combining ideas from different religions that are similar as though they're identical. Um, it's a tough question. It is a tough question. I mean, I, uh, I guess my my counter question would be: Well, why not simply resort to syncretism? Well, because I believe in objective truth. Yes. And I don't believe that all religions are equal. No. Okay, but I think invariably, I think all religions borrow and you know and, and crib and cut and paste from from other religions. Right? I don't know if that's true. Uh, all religions do so. Sure, hmm. absolutely. I don't know if that's true. Maybe in this particular instance, if uh, Philistines are Mycenaeans, yes, then they're not borrowing from another religion. They're just employing their own religion in a different place. Well, so we could avoid the syncretism question altogether. I, I think it's. I think it's. I think syncretism is, is uh, inevitable. I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't think these things descend in, in a kind of um, you know bubble wrap purity. I mm. think it's always going to be influenced by the culture ar- around it, right? I think and in, in negative ways. Not necessarily. I, I think that if you think about. And this doesn't, if to, just to look at um, like early Christian history. Right. Um, the, and this has nothing to do with gospel or biblical literature, um, but even things like, well, you know, well, why is Christmas December 25? Okay. And that's borrowed from a, a, a pagan predecessor, mm-hmm. right? Um, from, from Mithras or from, um, you know, the, the Saturn, the Saturnalia. Right? Okay. So th- these things kind of, I think, inevitably uh, creep in, or even the, the the term Easter. Okay. It borrowed it from as a it's a it's a Middle Eastern you know spring re- resurrection festival word. Fair. So I, and so I think those kinds of things just kind of they, they they creep into 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 all, kind of all religions, and that has, says nothing about to me that's a dilution of the truth of these things. It's just inevitable from the mingling of cultures. Okay. That's fair. All right. Well, let me um. Let me tell you, put my cards on the table, tell okay. you exactly what I'm thinking. All right. Uh, as we're doing this comparison between 1 Samuel 4 and Iliad 1, uh, we have a lot of uh, religious listeners, a lot, sure. of, a lot of Christian re- listeners. And I guess I don't want them to get the impression that we're saying that the 1 Samuel account is not true. Maybe they're more sophisticated than to draw that conclusion. But yeah. that the 1 Samuel account is not true in some absolute sense because it happens to look so much like the Iliad account. Right. That's the conclusion I don't want them to draw. Okay, right. I think that. So how would you? I mean, is this an uh, is this a unwarranted concern on my part? Is it off base, or uh, have we already addressed it carefully enough that? I think you know. Um, I think there's. I think people read biblical literature in different different kinds of ways. I think that. Um, uh, I don't think that, to my mind, the First Samuel account uh, has to be literally 
video cam true hmm. on all accounts. It's an interesting adjective there. Uh, well, video cam that right. one it, that that is that you know it is this happened exactly mm-hmm. as it's described right um and i don't think it has to be that for it to also impart uh important truths okay in the same way that i don't believe that there has to have been a prodigal son for that story to carry uh truth right but that's clearly a parable i mean jesus tells it as a story right but i think that i, I don't I, I think that if you if you look at archaeological records, if you look at comparative histories, and you line it up, uh, and you look at the at the Jewish scriptures, um, I think you find that, by and large, they are very reliable as historical documents. But I don't think that that means that they are all literally true in every exact sense. Hmm. Right? Yeah, well, I'm not sure what I think about that. We might have to disagree a little bit. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. I don't want to offend any, any of our listeners, but I respect I, I our audience enough have. that... but um, They're sophisticated enough to exactly. think, it, think it through on their own. Sure. All right. Well, Jeff, this seems like a, a good point uh, to a good spot to kind of start to wind down. Yes, I, I believe that our phrase is we are up against it. We are up against it. All right. right. Yep. Okay. So, but Dave, there's a lot more here. Yes. Right. So, where are we going to go with? We're going to go. We're going to extend this till next. Yes. Time, right? Giving Goliath his due, part two. Excellent. His doer. So, uh, next time we're going to talk about uh, wrapping up the origins of the Philistines. The Philistines from Joshua to David, then from David to Solomon, Solomon to Hezekiah, Hezekiah to Josiah. You get the you get the picture, <laughs> right, right. right? Yeah. And then the final destruction of Philistia. That's what I'm really interested yeah. in. Why and how did they just where did they dis- go disappear? Right. How did they come a by? How did they become a byword for uh, culture haters yes. and the um, the illiterati? You yeah, might yeah, say. yeah, yeah. So that's going to be the second part of uh, this very fascinating book. But Jeff, we do have to get out of here, don't we? We do, but not before. Dave, you tell us a little bit about the Moss Method and LLPSI. Okay, a very little bit. So Moss Method is a program I've developed for studying Greek. It takes you from? Uh, neophyte to erudite. That's correct. So if you know little or no Greek, I can teach you a lot more. I've been studying and teaching Greek for, oh my goodness, more than 30 years now. Man. That's a long time. And I've developed this program, which uh, is self-paced, expert, and accessible. Go to mossmethod.com. Um, as I've said before, I think this is kind of my new phrase. There might be a better program. I don't know for sure, but I'm very confident there is not a better value. Excellent. And uh, so we get together. We study Greek uh, on Fridays, a one-hour Zoom call per week, and uh, it's a, a rich amount of material. Excellent. And how about uh, if, if somebody wanted to learn Latin? Correct. Well, I have some folks signing up for my Latin course. It's based on Hans Orberg's uh, Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, Familia Romana. And uh, unit one is done. I'm working on unit two. It's been a little bit slow. I got so many other things to do. But uh, the first nine chapters of Orberg's book, uh, I t- I'm teaching it to four students in, an, in, a, in a studio audience kind of setting. And you can watch as these other students learn. You can learn from their successes and their mistakes. Uh, again, it's a comprehensive program, reading Latin, writing Latin, speaking Latin, and very affordable. Excellent. So go to latinperdm.com and check it out. Excellent. All right, Dave. Uh, we also got to thank some people before we yes, get we out do. here. Mishka, um, our engineer, as mm-hmm. always, uh, putting this together in record time. Yes, she's been working for me, uh, working for us for three years now. It's incredible. Isn't yeah. that amazing? We just passed our three-year mark. Yes, uh, we did. A couple, a couple weeks ago. Or That's right. Like that. And Mishka had no idea she would be engineering a podcast when I hired her. And right. uh, she's doing great work. She is do- does great We're work. We're so thankful. Scott and Ken, uh, the blistering guitar work and the, the really fun uh, pop sensibilities, Johnny Pop you like that i do like it a lot yep great stuff 
Hey, um, if you want to get a shout out, you got an idea for an episode, do not hesitate to write us. You can write to Dave, Dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or Jeff at adnauseum.com. Do not forget the V. We still have t-shirts for sale. We do? They're not the hot items that we had hoped, maybe. No, There's still time. They look great, though. They do. They look great. They, they look- have a Hercule- Hercules wrestling with a Nemean lion or holding up, uh, up the world on behalf of Atlas. Yeah. Got a nice Latin tag. What is that? Um, it, man, I, It's it, on the script. It, it's on the <laughs> script. <laughs> Quinokent Dokent. There you That's go. Quinokent right. yeah, so. Dokent. And I have to mention that yes. you know, that that um, that brilliant orange against the black on, on oh, sometimes it's it's very fall. Well, yes. Right? So oh, it's, nice. Yeah, exactly. It's hayridey. It is hayridey. Yep. It's like an attic red figure face. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right. So Jeff, yep. uh, what's up for next week? Next week we're going to continue this fascinating look at uh, at Goliath and giving uh, that big brute his due. There you go. Right. And Dave, you got our gustatory parting shot. I do. And I have to tell you, Jeff, it's a little bit long. I'm yeah. sorry. Yes. I've done so much reading. I hate to do it. But uh, again, but as I was searching for something good, this is the close closest that I got. Okay. So, what do you got? Uh, this is by Edward Robert Bulwer-Lytton. Guy's got four names. Man. Uh, for the record, I don't agree with the sentiment okay. whatsoever. <laughs> All right. Man does not live by bread alone. But yeah. I think it's a fantastic poem. It's funny. Here goes. We may live without poetry, music, and art. We may live without conscience and live without heart. We may live without friends. We may live without books. But civilized man cannot live without cooks. He may live without books. What is knowledge but grieving? He may live without hope. What hope? What is hope but deceiving? He may live without love. What is passion but pining? But where is the man that can live without dining? Very nice. It's a little like Seuss, it isn't is it? Little, it, it? Yeah. It's that same kind of rhythm. Yeah, right. yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks.